It's a privilege indeed to come together on this Lord's Day morning. Perhaps the sentiment of the 14th verse of Psalm 19 would fill all of our hearts and minds today. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. With that as the guiding thought for our day and indeed our life, that all that is done and said in our heart and mind would be pleasing and acceptable before the God of heaven, we would rest assured that with his word as a guide, we could live pleasingly always in his sight. As we come together on occasions like this one and engage in a study of his word, we of course appreciate God speaking with us and giving us the things that are pleasing to him. That will be no different today as we enter into a study of the title and the lesson that I've entitled on the screen on the wall to my left. A characteristic of, in fact, the divine reflection, the divine connection of the, of the contribution or the collection. As you think about that with me today, we, of course, will be looking at one of those aspects of our worship that has caused no small amount of controversy throughout the years. But let's begin our study by looking at some introductory thoughts and considering the following ideas. It is certainly the case that everything commanded and everything revealed by the God of heaven is significant. In fact, he gives it to us for our betterment and for our obedience thereto. One of the very last exclamations of the Bible in Revelation twenty-two fourteen is this. As the Apostle John finished that character of that grand book, he made an impressive statement about the essential nature of obedience. There he said, Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. Who is it, John, then, that shall be blessed to enter into the grand portals of heaven? It's those that do his commandments. Among those commandments are, of course, things that relate to a number of ideas in this life. It is certainly the case that some of the commandments and works of the Lord can be done without especial amounts of money. You and I, for instance, can share a word of encouragement. We can, in fact, conduct a Bible study with someone else, and that doesn't require money, per se. Furthermore, we might engage in a number of things that may aid in the propagation of the wondrous gospel of Jesus Christ. But isn't it also the case that some of the activities of which we read in the Scriptures do require the usage of some money? For example, as you and I think about the nature of that idea that leads us to the character of the contribution, we of course will do that here in just a few moments today by the blessing of God. But our lesson today will surround the topic of that collection. What is the collection? What are some things that the Bible reveals about it? What about the attitude of those who contribute? Is it an essential part of God's commands, or is it optional? Remember that we noted earlier that we must do the commandments of God if we are to be pleasing to Him, and with that in mind, let's then engage in a consideration of what does the Bible say about the contribution, about the collection. Might I begin with perhaps one comment, and it's the last thing on that screen. We each are well aware of the fact that mankind has often abused the collection. We have each observed instances, perhaps on TV or even in personal ways, where there are those who have especially preyed upon the earnest and sincere feelings of others and have used that to basically become rich themselves. 
We are not discussing that today. That obviously is against the command of God. And to those individuals, we might well hasten them to 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 and 10, where there Paul to Timothy gave a dire warning about such activities as that. He said, But they that would be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveteth after they have erred from the faith, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And thus, with that comment made, that's not our specific interest. Our goal is to better understand what about those with a sincere and encouraged heart give contribution, what about the attitude, and what role does it serve in the accomplishment of the work of God? With that thought made, Turn with me to the next set of ideas in our lesson today. We made note a moment ago about some things that you and I can do that do not require special amounts of money. Be that a kind, encouraging word, a Bible study conducted with somebody. But might it also be of note that there are some activities spoken of in the Bible that do require the usage of some money. In the closing chapter of the Gospel according to Mark, Jesus made this statement in Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. He said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. We then see the imperative need of evangelism to herald the gospel to all places. You and I realize that some of the ways we can do that is by TV and by radio, but those require money. We can also do that by paying a missionary to perhaps go to a place that you and I cannot, be it in Africa or in Asia or perhaps in places in Europe or even in our own land. When you and I support a person who does that, we are fulfilling the command of God, but that requires some money on our part. Notice also in James 1 verse 27, there the inspired writer made this statement. He said, one is to in fact consider it pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows and their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. And hence there is a need for benevolence to aid those who cannot aid themselves at the particular time. Money is needed for that. In addition, one could mention edification. We have classes that are conducted here and supplies are purchased for those classes. Where does that money come from? We appreciate the church contributes powerfully and abundantly to that aid, and so the church conducts many works by virtue of funding that it has available to it. Perhaps we could list many other things that may have rushed to your mind. There's the upkeep of this facility. There's the character of the bill, such as water and electricity, that must be paid on a regular basis. And the list perhaps goes on and on. But might we appreciate that some of the works then that are mentioned in the Bible would require the utilization of some funds or some money? One obvious question, where does that money come from? There are those in our world today who would happily have a garage sale or a bake sale or a yard sale and use that funding in order to support the works of the church. We, of course, must stand on the thus saith the Lord and nothing else. And as we perceive that thought, may we look into the Word of God today and ask, what does God say about where that money is to come from? 
Might I submit to you that as we begin that, we're going to find that God desires you and me, his fellow laborers, to participate with him by contributing freely and voluntarily to the accomplishment of his will. And we can do that by financial gifts, by contributing by the collection to the work of the Lord. To begin that study, might I ask you to return with me to the Old Testament? That may sound a bit odd. For after all, in the Old Testament, we realize the Lord had not died at that point. However, there are some principles for our study that we will find embedded deeply within the Old Testament that will encourage us to better understand, I'm convinced, the character of the collection today. Wasn't it Paul who stated in Romans 15:4, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. With that stated, look back with me into the Old Testament as follows. In those instances where various activities commanded by God amongst the children of Israel took place, where did the funding for that come? Where did the means for that take place? Revisit with me the scene of the tabernacle construction in Exodus 35. On that occasion, God had given commandment that a tabernacle was to be furnished and made. He gave explicit instructions as to what furnishings were to be within it. You might recall it was to have an Ark of the Covenant. It was to have a golden lampstand. It was to have a table of shittim wood. It was to have a veil that separated the most holy from the holy place. But what's more, it was to have a top, a covering, if you will, of various skins and types. One could proceed to notice that many items were needed. Precious stones, the various fabrics that were used for the covering, the wood, the various metals. Where did all of that come from? God did not miraculously create it out of nothing. Rather, in Exodus 35, verses 4 through 29, we read that God's people voluntarily offered that for the construction of that tabernacle. They gave of their own means the precious stones and the silver and the gold and the fabrics and the coverings. God's people contributed to the construction of that tabernacle. And isn't it fascinating that in chapter 40 of the book of Exodus, we notice that God blessed that and was pleased and happy with it. But note there's yet other examples. We have seen in this first case that God's work was supported by the free will contributions of those who were his people. But notice in Ezra, chapters 1 as well as chapter 7, on that occasion we remember the children of Israel, the people of God, had returned from captivity in Babylon. And upon returning, of course, that temple had been demolished. It had been utterly desolated by Nebuchadnezzar and his armies in 586 B.C., but when the people returned, they began to rebuild another temple. As they did that, where were some of the items to be found that were used in the construction of that new temple? Ezra 1 as well as Ezra 7 indicate that certainly some of it were decrees of Cyrus, but the people also made free will contributions, free will offerings of supplies and items so that that temple could be completed and so that it could be constructed. Thus, on these two occasions, we have seen an interesting principle. God's people contributed freely and voluntarily. God did not force them to do so, but as they gave, it was a blessing to Him, and the funds were used to further the cause of God. 
consider yet a third example. This one is rather different in character. In Exodus chapter 30, on this occasion, the tabernacle was again under, under purview, under discussion. And notice that God gave a special command that all of those who came to that tabernacle were to make an offering of a half shekel. That money was to be used for the upkeep of that tabernacle. It was to be used to further the cause of God. We here notice an important principle that those who came, those who participated by offering sacrifices in that temple with the other activities that took place there, they each contributed a half shekel. We'll notice now that there's an interesting thought there. Every person, whether poor or rich, was to give the same amount. There was no distinction between what each one was to give, and that's an interesting point. But we notice that that tabernacle tax is actually the one our Lord made mention of near the end of Matthew 17. All the while, we have seen in these texts an interesting discussion and the fact that they continued to the Old Testament era. One clear example of that latter one is found in the 24th chapter of 2 Chronicles where there the king Joash actually had placed in the temple a chest, a, a, a cedar-type arrangement, if you will, and as the people went in, they would drop their half-shekel contribution actually into a large piggy bank, if you will, and that money was used to repair the temple when it became in disrepair. There we have an explicit example of how some of the funding in the Old Testament was in fact used. So far, we have seen that God's people contributed and that they did so freely and they did so at least in that way of tax as command of God. However, there is another aspect also of giving that we have not yet mentioned. The Old Testament also mentions tithing. What was that expressly? The word tithe just means tenth, T-E-N-T-H. In what way were the people of Israel to tithe? I've listed some passages for your consideration. One of them in Deuteronomy 14.29 gives us the reason for the tithing. Now notice that that tithing was in addition to these other voluntary gifts, and it was also in addition to this tabernacle tax. What was the tithing? Deuteronomy 14.29 gives us the following background. There was one tribe of Israel that had no land inheritance. It was the Levites. Their inheritance, if you recall with me, was the actual responsibility of upkeeping and maintaining by virtue of their work as priests in the tabernacle and later the temple. However, we might realize God did provide for their needs. They still needed food. They still needed other necessities of life. It was the tithe of the children of Israel that maintained them. That tithe that was collected that was used to support the tribe of Levi, by and large. And furthermore, notice in Leviticus 27 what that tithe included. The children of Israel were to tithe of their seed, of their flock, of their herd, of their fruitlings. In other words, the tithe extended significantly, did it not? It wasn't just money. They were to tithe of these other material matters, again, such as the elements of their herd, the elements of their flock, the elements of the seed that they might harvest. To say all of that is to say this, 
that is, the children of Israel contributed to the work of God, when you consider that the tithe was the 10%, and that's in addition to those other elements of contribution, they gave well over 10% of the total amount of the things that they possessed in service to God. That's an interesting thing to consider, especially in light of Malachi chapter 3. One might immediately imagine that a family may have been hard-pressed, and so they may not have tithed the way that God commanded, or they may not have given in the way that God would have desired. Did God ignore that? Did he understand? Did he simply take that as a means that it's not essential anymore? The very last book of the Old Testament, in fact, has an explicit example that is worthy of our study. In fact, in the day of Malachi, listen to the following verses. Let me read verses 7 and 8 of Malachi chapter 3. Even from the days of your fathers, ye are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye say, Wherein shall we return? If we pause there a moment, we have here a controversy between the God of heaven and the children of Israel. The children of Israel, God expressly said, You, even from the days of your fathers, have turned aside from mine ordinances. You haven't kept them the way that you should. Well, the people, with a sense of pride, if you will, said, Well, wherein have we gone astray? Lord, what have we done amiss? God answers in verse 7, Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. God directly challenged and in fact accused them, you have robbed me. Well, they again are not convinced and so they say, wherein have we robbed thee? God, when have we ever failed to provide for you that which you commanded? When have we ever robbed you? God answers one more time, in tithes and in offerings. And thus, God accuses them of withholding from him those offerings and those tithes which they should have offered. And in verses 9 and following, we learn that God was not pleased. In fact, that was a sin into which they had fallen. They had kept too much for themselves. They were not contributing to the work of the God of the Old Testament as they ought to have been. And for that, God did not ignore it. He did not neglect it but rather he accused them of their iniquity and their sinful ways. To say all of that perhaps leads me to note in concluding this first part of the lesson that in the Old Testament we've seen some valuable principles that God's people were to contribute freely and voluntarily to the work of God. And that as they did that, it would be pleasing to him and the funds were to be used for the accomplishment of the work of God upon earth. To say all that begs the question of the New Testament. We realize we do not live beneath the law of Moses any longer. We realize that law was nailed to the cross, Colossians 2.14. What does the New Testament say about the collection, the contribution? If we begin to look at these New Testament matters, we will notice an interesting set of parallels. Just as God in the Old Testament authorized the collection of free will offerings for the sustenance of his work, in the New Testament era, he did the same. He authorized free will contributions from his people for the accomplishment of the work of his church. In fact, consider some passages with me. In the 16th chapter of 1 Corinthians, beginning in verse number 1, 
we remember that that congregation in Corinth was beset by a number of problems. Among them was the proper disposition of the contribution. What was it to be used for? How was it to be used? When was it to be collected? We note today even that there are many who still have questions about the collection. Can we take it every day of the week? There are some who abuse it that might wish it were that way. Paul, by inspiration, made this remark beginning in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 16. He said, Now concerning the collection, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. Thus Paul made two interesting statements, did he not? First, this order that was given to the church in Corinth was exactly the same, he said, as the orders to the churches of Galatia. This was no special thing just for Corinth. In fact, it was a part of the church of the New Testament era. And when? On the first day of the week. That's when the collection is to be taken. That's when it is to be made. This free will contribution, this collection, if you will, as it occurs on that Sunday, is lastly to be noted according as they've been prospered. Here we reach a fundamental distinction to the Old Testament. There, each one, as far as the tabernacle tax, gave a half shekel. Whether rich or poor, it was the same. Here, Paul said it's according to how one has prospered. Those who have prospered much, God expects to give more. Those who've prospered less, God is perfectly understanding of the fact they can give less. But as you notice that distinction, notice also the similarities. God doesn't coerce. He doesn't force the contribution. It is to be a matter of thankfulness and love toward the God of heaven. Some other passages that challenge us in that way. Notice with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. On this occasion, this letter, of course, written to the same congregation, the very same congregation. And in 2 Corinthians 8, notice there what is stated, especially in verse number 4. Praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. In essence, we see a very beautiful statement in which Paul says, These brethren in Macedonia, not only did we not have to force them to make the collection, they in fact insisted that we take it. What a passage that discusses the free will character, the voluntary nature of our contribution to God. Notice in verse 12 later in that same chapter, For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. There is that willing mind. You and I should look forward to the opportunity of contributing to the work of God to an understanding that our labor as such as we contribute can be used to further His cause and expand the borders of His kingdom upon this earth. Notice the text we read in one chapter later, verse number 9. I'm sorry, verse 7 of chapter 9. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. Notice that Paul, as an apostle, perhaps could have coerced the church in Corinth to give. But Paul said that's not the way it's to be done. It must be done not grudgingly, furthermore, not of necessity. 
God does not coerce our gift. He rather pleads. He encourages us to give as we have been prospered. And that's the command that he sets before us. Notice as that verse begins, though, he says, according as he purposeth in his heart. What does it mean to purpose? You and I, then, as we give in accordance to what God has blessed us so abundantly with, we must appreciate that we must give purposefully. God ought not get the leftovers. God ought not get what else is left behind once we've paid for all the luxuries of life that we might prefer. We first ought to set out and determine what to contribute to Him and then to utilize what's left over to pay for those luxuries that we might desire in life. We must purpose in our heart what to give Him. As we do that, we of course will do it, recognizing that He has prospered us so greatly. Our table is full, our house is warm, we have clothes on our back, we have jobs, in fact, that we can utilize to provide for our family and ourselves. God has blessed us physically so very much. But as if that's not extensive enough, what about the gift at Golgotha about 20 centuries ago? For there the God of heaven dipped down his pen of love, if you will, and wrote, I love you, right there on the cross. And it's been an open statement ever since. God loved each and every one of us enough to give his son to die for our sins, to take our place, and in so doing to provide a way that we could be with him in heaven forever. What a statement of love. And yet as he opens heaven and pours out physical blessings upon us, you and I have the beautiful obligation to give to him as we've been prospered and to do so lovingly and cheerfully, appreciating that those funds can be used to further his cause and to maintain his work in this sinful old world. To say all of that is to say that we can draw some thoughts then about this New Testament discussion. And that's the following, for there are some texts that we have yet to look at in this very heart of the book of 2 Corinthians. We hinted at it in the Old Testament, that when the children of Israel failed to give as they had been prospered, they were sinning against God, that they were not doing that which God commanded. God accused them directly of that in Malachi 3. I would encourage you to ask, what about today, when if you and I fail to give as we've been prospered, does God look favorably upon that, or does he look very negatively upon it? Some text here in this very book will aid us in answering that. Look with me at verses 5 and 8 of 2 Corinthians 8. Verses 5 and 8, please. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Those brethren in Macedonia were having a difficult time. Perhaps Paul insinuates that he had not expected their gift to be so large, to be so bountiful, and to be so liberal on their behalf. But Paul says in verse 5, first they gave themselves to the Lord. That's why that gift was as large as it was. They first dedicated and committed themselves to the God who loved them, and then the giving of the actual money was much easier for them. But notice also in verse 8, I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. 
Those are the words of the inspired apostle. That collection, that contribution is in essence a reflection of your divine connection. If you and I are close to God and we love the work of the Lord, we will find those means of contributing as we've been prospered. We will not leave God the leftovers. We will determine and purpose in our hearts to give to Him that which rightfully belongs to Him. And notice, in so doing, that is the proof of the sincerity of our love. No wonder, then, that title is an appropriate one. Isn't it true, then, the collection is a reflection of our divine connection? The closeness that we have to God, the appreciation we have for the gospel, the love we have for the work of the Lord will manifest itself in part in our contribution that we make to His cause and to His work. In the very next chapter, notice that premise as it's revisited. In chapter number 9, notice verse 8, And as God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. As you and I abound unto every good work, that will demand our contribution. It will involve the usage of the funds and monies made available to the cause of Christ. Isn't it interesting to see this in light of Matthew 6, verse 33, where there our Savior taught, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The contribution, the collection, is at times a subject that is often better avoided, but it is a part of the Word of God. If you and I are to be dutiful toward the God of heaven, we must address that subject and consider it in light of our own personal giving and to make sure we do that in light of how God has prospered us. As we consider the purposeful way in which that is done, isn't this a thought-provoking matter? Isn't it a personal challenge to each of us to always put self beneath our service to God and to contribute to Him as He has prospered us? Those thoughts perhaps do allow us to conclude our lesson or summarize it in these words. We've studied the collection today, and we've noticed that the work of God on earth in many ways is pushed forward, maintained by the free will offerings that you and I make. Those offerings are indeed to be voluntary. God won't reach His hand in our pocket and take them. But if we do not give as we've been prospered, it really is a matter of the heart. Is our heart in the right place? Do we treasure and appreciate the love He's bestowed upon us? Are we as thankful as we ought to be for the myriad of blessings that we enjoy physically? All of those are good questions, aren't they? It would seem the Scriptures answer them affirm in great affirmation when it says that that collection is a reflection. It is a proof of our sincerity and love. Today, as you think about your life in Christ, as we each consider where we stand in that way, are you giving as you've been prospered? It is not a tithe. Tithing was done away in the Old Testament. We live under the age in which we purposefully give as we have been prospered. When you and I do that, God's work will be sent forth for there will be enough funds to do that which needs to be done. God has blessed each of us physically so very much. Do we each give as we ought to? That's something that only you and I personally and individually can answer. But one day we shall stand before the God of heaven and we will be judged according to our works, one of which will be our giving. As you think about then in Jesus, have you become a Christian initially? 
If you have not, let today be that day. If you know that Jesus died for your sins, realizing that you're apart from God, appreciate the great sacrifice made for you. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess His sweet name as your Savior. And then be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Upon so doing, Christ will add you to His church. You will then be installed as a full member and no man votes you in. Christ places you there by addition. And then live faithfully with Him until death, walking hand in hand and knowing His power day by day. When you do that, you will give as you've been prospered. You will know the goodness with which the work of God can be pushed forward by your contribution. And then, as you reach near the end of this life, you'll know the hope of heaven that stands before you. If, however, you have not been faithful, come back to your first love today. Brethren would be more than happy to pray on your behalf, with you and for you. And just as was happened with Simon in Acts 8, God will forgive those sins. Today, if we could be of any assistance to you, may we each continue to think about the character of the contribution and to so live worthy of that vocation wherewith we have been called. Ephesians 4, verse number 1. If we could help you in any way publicly in response today, let us know that and even take care of that even now while together we stand and while we sing.